Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Samuel Nerding, the Research Associate at Bicom. And for this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with our guest, Henry Rome, on around the JCPOA nuclear talks in Vienna and about how a potential return to the nuclear agreement could impact the region. Henry Rome is the Deputy Head of Research at the Geopolitical Risk Consultancy firm, the Eurasia Group. Henry is the firm's expert on Middle Eastern geopolitics, international security and economic sanctions with a focus on Iran and Israel. Henry, thanks for coming onto the Balkan podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Samuel. Thank you. So perhaps we can start with a, a quick overview of where the parties currently stand on the nuclear talks in Vienna for those who have not been following the weekly updates like you and I have. Sure. So the talks began in April and there have been six rounds between early April um, and last month. Basically, talks have uh, uh, gone on pause before the Iranian election and have been uh, in kind of a state of limbo since then. And essentially, it's, it's really up to Tehran at this point to get its ducks in a row. The Iranians are meeting with representatives of the parliament, the National Security Council, the foreign ministry, and officials from the new president's uh, uh, office to try to decide next steps. I, I think in terms of where we are right now, the sides have kind of a, a agreed on the easy stuff. They've, they've agreed on a path back to, um, to the JCPOA in terms of relieving the sectoral US sanctions in terms of winding back most of Iran's uh, nuclear activity. But what's left, of course, is the tricky stuff, specifics of which sanctions go, which sanctions stay, as, as well as how to achieve that one-year breakout time uh, or the equivalent of a one-year breakout time using uh, reductions in Iran's nuclear capabilities. And, and there are a number of maximalist demands that the Iranians have thrown in, uh, such as receiving guarantees that a future U.S. president won't withdraw from the deal, and also compensation uh, for the U.S. withdrawal in 2018, and some more demands on sanctions. So the kind of general state of play is they've made some progress, but as with many negotiations, the hard stuff is, is saved uh, for the end. Right. You mentioned there the, um, the election of the new president, President Raisi. How much has, has, has that impacted the talks and the likelihood of, of reaching an agreement? So I think the 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 actual impact is is not as much as as people had assumed. I think there there was an argument heading into this year that there was a window of opportunity in which the U.S. and Iran could get back into the agreement before the Iranian election or before the Iranian campaign even started, in order to capitalize on President Rouhani and his more diplomatically minded um, outlook and and team. That didn't come to pass, and um, and 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 that's not 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 surprising. The policy on an issue as important as the nuclear program is designed uh, by ultimately by the supreme leader, but come to through a consensus of regime elites. And uh, and I think the kind of general posture of, of of the government, which is skepticism towards the U.S., distrust of the U.S. ability to keep its commitments, but a general inclination in favor of returning to the JCPOA. I think all of that is consistent under a President Raisi as it was under a President Rouhani. The, the reason we don't have a deal yet, uh, frankly, is because Iran was content to wait until after the election uh, in, in, in order to move forward. It, it did not want to appear desperate for a deal. It wanted to see how much it could get from the US side. And it also didn't want to upset the pre-election period, which was uh, extremely important in terms of 
the Iranian uh, political stability and uh, talks about succession. So what, what does Raisi mean? Uh, is, there, is there a real impact? I'm, my, my outlook is, is still that I think there will be a deal done this year. I think the sides will, will get back into it um, uh, over the next uh, you know, two quarters left in the year because it still remains very much in, in Iran's strategic interest. And it also remains in President Raisi's political interest, given that he's inheriting a, a country with a, with, with, with a very weak economy and will want, I think, to start off his term uh, on, on a more positive foot. So in some, I don't see the Raisi election as, as having a really dramatic impact on the JCPOA talks. I wonder if I can get your opinion on, on the latest kind of Iranian um, violation that they announced they will start doing. They said that they're going to begin using its enriched uranium to produce uranium metal. Uh, to what extent is this kind of latest provocation more significant compared to the other steps taken by Iran before over the last two years? I think it is quite provocative. And, and as the, the UK, France and Germany said, this uh, is a step that is directly related to uh, developing a nuclear weapon. And, and I think it's part of a long string of, of provocations that, that the Iranians have uh, carried out since 2019. And I think it's, it's become more, more serious as time has gone on, especially in terms of deployment of advanced centrifuges, increasing the level of enrichment, as well as what, what, what you just mentioned, these uh, kind of R&D efforts um, on steps that really have no other purpose other than um, practicing uh, and learning techniques that, that would be useful um, in, in developing a bomb. Now, I think Iran is not sitting here today trying to build a bomb. What it's trying to do is build leverage and gain expertise that it could use in, in the future. I think the, 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 the real risk here, setting aside the, the proliferation risk, but the risk to the negotiations is that at a certain point, the collection of all of these advancements on the advanced centrifuges, on higher enrichment levels, et cetera, will put Iran in a position where uh, it can break out to a bomb if it chose to do so on a quicker timetable than it could have under the JCPOA's limits uh, back in 2016. And so at that point, the US would demand of Iran uh, additional steps to roll back its nuclear program beyond that which it imposed under the JCPOA to ensure that you can achieve that one year breakout time. So essentially the, the leverage that Iran has can, can almost boomerang, whereas at a certain point, it builds up so much leverage and so much capability that it actually makes a deal harder because the US will be demanding certain things that Iran will, will not want to accept. And so I think that's why you're starting to see comments from the US side, noting that time is not unlimited uh, and that uh, the more Iran advances on the nuclear program, actually the, the, the harder it could make negotiations. So I think when, when we think about what are some of the main risks to the progress of these negotiations, I think this one is, is, is the number one risk. Does Iran get too far uh, such that it would make returning to the deal's conditions politically impossible for, for both sides? You recently co-wrote a, a really interesting piece with, with Eric Brewer in, in War on the Rocks about Iran's real intentions in Vienna or, or what they could be. You, you question the assumption that underpin, <clears throat> underpins the general consensus in Western governments that Iran is, is desperate to rejoin the JCPOA or wants to really re rejoin the JCPOA. I wonder if you can just flush out those arguments and maybe explain why Iran might not think it's actually in its interest to, to return to the agreement. 
Sure. So we, we outlined four assumptions that we think Western governments and uh, Western observers and, and we ourselves make about the idea that Iran wants to get back into the deal. And, and I don't want to spoil the, the whole article, but one in particular that I wanted to, to spin out for your listeners is the idea that the, uh, the, the assumption basically is that these maximalist demands that I mentioned um, earlier, the idea that the U.S. has to provide assurances it won't leave again, has to provide compensation, has to do basically more uh, under this re-entry to the deal than it did when the deal was originally signed. I, I think the, the assumption among, among many is that these demands will fall away because they cannot be met by the U.S. and that this is a negotiating tactic. I think, frankly, that's a, that's a correct assumption, but let's, let's tease out what if that's wrong. And the, the, the logic here would be that Iran was disappointed by the JCPOA sanctions relief and the leadership may come to the conclusion that actually JCPOA reentry, absent these additional um, provisions, actually wouldn't be worth it and wouldn't be worth much for the Iranians, given uh, what they are demanded um, to do in exchange. So, so I think that's, that's just a really important aspect of this conversation that we should be honest about, that the idea that Iran definitely wants to get back into the deal um, has uh, takes into account a number of assumptions and that that might not actually um, pan out. So we, we wanted to kind of flag this and, and, and raise some uh, concerns and potential signposts about what it would look like if this actually wasn't the case. But I think both, both, both Eric and I are still of the view that uh, Iran is still interested, but we, we wanted to do a, do a bit of a thought experiment. No, no, it was a great, great um, essay, and I, I encourage our readers to go and go and check it out to um to get the full kind of all the say all the four assumptions. The, the Iranian challenge is is also kind of evident in other sectors. So at the end of June, we saw the U.S. attacked a kind of a pro-Iranian militia drone base on the border between Syria and Iraq. Um, since then, there's been a series of drone attacks on American bases in Iraq. To what extent is kind of Iran's regional policy linked to its policy in, in Vienna with the talks? So I think there's, there, there's no doubt that, that the nuclear program, the regional policy, the missile program is, is all part of the broader Iranian challenge that uh, Western governments and regional governments have to grapple with. I, I, I don't know that there is a particularly tight connection um, per se on you know, a specific attack and the developments at around the nuclear negotiating table. I, I think actually the nuclear talks have been quite insulated from other events. Uh, there have been uh, at least one, probably two attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities linked to Israel while the talks were ongoing. There have been, as you mentioned, um, attacks against US forces, continued attacks against US forces, as well as a US retaliation um, against those militias in Iraq and Syria. Um, and there have been no a number of other developments, but the talks have been fairly fairly set apart, and I would expect that to continue so long as all of the sides see it um, as as very much in their in their interest. But one 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 point here that's that's important to kind of underscore um, is that this kind of insulation that that we've seen so far is is not inevitable. It's not automatic. So this actually leads to uh, another one of the assumptions that uh, we wrote in the War on the Rocks piece, and and that's the idea that both the U.S. and Iran are going to pursue their interests in the region, but that they won't do anything that could inadvertently derail the talks. The, the idea that this insulation of the negotiations is not automatic and is not permanent, and, and that the two sides will do their best to keep 
um, keep the talks insulated as best they can. But I think there's a lot of risk here. The, 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 the risk, uh, perhaps, of an Iranian-backed militia um, incurring a number of casualties on the U.S. side, for instance, could make it very politically difficult for the Biden administration to continue talks, or at least continue talks now. So I think that's, that's an, another area um, that as time goes on and as the negotiations drag out, it just creates more opportunities for uh, these, you know, I, either intentional or accidental incidents um, to, to potentially derail them. What about President Rahisi's foreign policy? What do you think it will be? There's, there's been talk that Iran may, may implement an, an energy strategic shift after focusing for too long on the Western Europe and instead kind of look towards the, the BRICS kind of group of countries, which kind of might care less about the nuclear program. Do you think that's a, a shift that the new president might bring into his foreign policy? Well, I, th I think that this is a fantastic question, and it's one that uh, I don't think gets, gets enough discussion here, kind of how, how Raisi's domestic economic policy, how his foreign policy impacts um, the kind of future of the, of, of the nuclear agreement. Let's, let's just say for a second, let's assume that there is a reentry into the nuclear deal and that it is President Raisi who is in charge of, of, of implementing that. I think the, the, the contrast with, with his predecessor, Hassan Rouhani, will be particularly striking. After getting the nuclear agreement signed, Rouhani went on a European tour in early 2016 to try to drum up business. He campaigned on a you know, seemingly daily basis, fought the internal battles against the Revolutionary Guards to open up key sectors of the Iranian economy to foreign investment. He tried to push through and, and succeed in, in some cases, legislation to reform Iran's internal banking regulations and anti-money laundering regulations. These were all part of a strategy to link the Iranian economy closer to the West, to benefit from Western technology and investment, to make Iran a more, um, uh, a more attractive country for investment. Now, of course, it ran into a, a host of problems and, and, and nothing panned out, as we mentioned earlier, as the Iranians may have hoped, but, but that was the strategy. The Raisi approach is, is going to be very, very different. It, he is not going to go to Europe, try to drum up Western business. He is not going to fight battles to try to open up the Iranian economy uh, and, and expand the role of international actors or the private sector. I, I think most likely he's going to continue the, uh, what the Supreme Leader calls the resistance economy, which focuses on the neighbors, a trade with the neighbors, as well as with, with Russia and China. Uh, and does not pursue or make uh, domestic reforms uh, in order to attract uh, Western investment. And I think that creates a, a very different dynamic for, for the West, for, for regional actors, because in, in terms of convincing Iran to engage in follow-on negotiations uh, and what the U.S. has to offer Iran in those negotiations, well, what, what, what the U.S. has to offer, access to the U.S. dollar, access to the U.S. economy, uh, potentially U.S. firms entering Iran. Th these are all things that Raisi doesn't want. So I think there's um, there there there's a lot here that's going to affect um, really the trajectory of of U.S.-Iran relations uh, in the coming years, and and it's really not a good story. I'll ask you a question in a minute about kind of all the players in the region and how that might impact them. But I thought we can just talk about maybe the um, the Europeans' role over the last couple of years and the three which you mentioned earlier: the U.K., Germany, and France. They they've issued countless statements over the last couple of years highlighting their concerns, serious concern, grave concern 
of kind of Iran's nuclear development. Do, do you think the three have kind of made themselves irrelevant to Iran over the kind of the, the nuclear issue, given all their threats, but their like, little action? And do you think if the talks do fail, that the E3 will return to multilateral sanctions? Um, do you think it's in, they see it in their interest to, to do so? Yeah, I mean, so I like the I like the hypothetical. I mean, we're 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 a long way off from that, of course. I think if there is a a kind of total collapse of negotiations and kind of a redux to about a decade ago, I I I would expect um, the 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 E three to uh, to to kind of persuade their their the European counterparts to try to increase economic pressure on on, on Iran. But that that I think is a very Kind of last resort um, situation at this point, you know. I wouldn't say the the E three are, are are irrelevant at all, but their leverage here um, is is diminishing. If uh, you know President Raisi is not interested as much in Europe and European investment in 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 European economic relationships, that makes um, what 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 the E three have to offer, both as um, carrots and sticks, a lot less meaningful. So I think um, I, I think the the E3 and and the EU play a key role in in kind of convening the parties in trying to bridge differences. But at this point, it's really a U.S. Iran um, story and a real and and kind of a U.S. Iran negotiation. I think the the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese have important roles, as I said, in 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 trying to facilitate compromise and trying to bring the sides together, try to bridge. Gaps, um, but but fundamentally, um, at least at this stage, this is a U.S. Iran story. Looking back at kind of at the region and, and kind of regional politics, most of the kind of the, the, the big players in the region, see Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, they're looking on with interest at this kind of this possible connection or this possible kind of dual developments between a return to the JCPOA and continued U.S. military withdrawals from from the region. Do you see there's like, do you see any connection between the two and how kind of may both developments impact the current balance in the region? Well, I think they're they're connected in that they're essentially two sides of the same coin for the Biden administration. The idea of ending the so-called endless wars or the forever wars in, in Afghanistan, as well as asserting the importance of diplomacy um, in in addressing problems such as the, the Iranian nuclear issue, all of this kind of in, in service of the kind of long sought pivot uh, to the Indo-Pacific and, and addressing a, a systemic challenge from, from China. So, you know, I, 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 I think they're, they're connected in that these were key points um, that of the Biden campaign and I think key points that the president um, believes. You know, I think the, the message to the region is that the uh, Biden administration really means this, this shift to Asia, this pivot and doesn't want to get bogged down in, in regional conflicts that have kind of entrapped his, his predecessors. Now, now there, there are a few risks here. I mean, one is the kind of often, um, often quoted line that uh, you might be done with the Middle East, but the Middle East isn't, isn't done, done with you. I think the um, uh, Hamas-Israel war back a couple months ago was, was a good reminder uh, of that, and, and I think there are there are many ways, um, and and many U.S. presidents have experienced how um, letting kind of Middle Eastern conflicts um, boil over or go unaddressed can 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 actually um, backfire in pretty significant ways. And and I think another risk here is that regional countries will interpret this that the U.S. is is abandoning the Middle East, which which I don't think is true, but I think that that 
uh, could be the the perception, which which could embolden uh, U.S. adversaries to kind of go on the offensive here um, and try to run up the score against uh, against U.S. allies and partners. And and, and so I think it creates uh, a lot of risk in in the coming years. I wonder if I can talk um, ask you a question about kind of the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy and whether it worked. Obviously maybe not the current Israeli government, but the previous one under Netanyahu was very much pro-maximum pressure. And, and they believed that, you know, after a couple of years, it, it would have actually brought Iran back to the negotiation table in a much weaker position and, and maybe would have given them, given kind of more um, compromises. Based on kind of the, the data that you saw, did you think the maximum pressure campaign was working? Um, do you think if we did have over four years, I know it's, it's counterintuitive, but do you think if we did over four years that it could have actually brought Iran to its knees and, and maybe even produced a, a longer, stronger, more comprehensive agreement? So I think the short answer is no. Trump admittedly was publicly uh, inviting Iran on multiple occasions to negotiate. And, and I think uh, that was a genuine uh, offer. And, and we saw his engagement on multiple occasions um, with, with Kim from North Korea, his kind of preference for personal diplomacy and uh, kind of a huge amount of confidence that he would be able to achieve things one-on-one -on -one that um, multiple U.S. administrations had failed to in the past. But he appointed people like John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, who demanded regime change out of, out, out of Iran. And so I think from the Iranian point of view, not only does the U.S. essentially without cause uh, tear up this agreement, which had been functioning, and not only do they um, uh, slap on, a, you know, probably one, one could say the, the most comprehensive sanctions regime ever put in place uh, against another country by, by the U.S., but the folks who are executing that strategy are also calling for um, really a, a, a wholesale change in, in the Iranian government. And so I think it, it basically offered, uh, offered very little in, in terms of off-ramps for the Iranians. Now, if, if there was a second Trump term, um, how, how would this pan out? You, you, you know, I think a, a key question would be uh, whether Pompeo or Bolton and, and their coterie would be um, in power. And, and if they were out of the picture, I, I, I think it's, it's possible to imagine some kind of negotiations, but um, it's a tough hypothetical to, to engage in. I, I, I think the kind of fundamental point and that the Biden administration is, is trying to dig out of right now is that the maximum pressure strategy um, while severely damaging the Iranian economy, there's no doubt about that, uh, did, did not achieve uh, in, a, in a sustainable way any of its main objectives. And so uh, the Biden team is, is now uh, having to, to put together the pieces. Henry, that was, that was fascinating. Really, uh, really good to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens over the summer to see if, uh, if agreement does come about. But for now, thank you, Henry, so much for your time. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks so much.